short story for you tonight, darling. My health has not been very good lately, and I'm a little short of breath. But don't worry, it's nothing that you can catch. For most of the years of my life, there was a little house on the other side of the woods from my grandparents' house that was a perfect fairy tale cottage. It was likely built in the late 1920s or early 1930s and was a classic mock Tudor style with delightfully whimsical features like a cat slide roof and a very narrow, high-pitched centered gable above a rounded wooden door surrounded by alternating bricks and highly textured beige stucco. The front yard had a wending little path that wandered through English-style flowers like foxgloves and snapdragons, and everything about it was charming and considered and decorative and fun and beautiful. It was just like in a fairy tale. It could be where the vicar lived, or the witch, or the princess so you can imagine the gasps from both me and my mom when we drove past sometime in the early 2000s to see a for sale sign for the very first time ever. Someone would have opportunity to live in such a beautiful and wonderful house. It would never be me. I knew that. But I watched in a subtle jealousy as that house was put up for sale several more times over the next few years. Indeed, no one seemed to own that house for more than one or two years before it was relisted and sold again. Now the fact that that house was sold as many as five or six times in as many years meant that there couldn't have been something structurally wrong with it or that surely would have been identified in one of the inspections that are conditions of a sale. Something else was wrong with that house. And if we think about it, a house built in the 1930s, coming up for sale for the very first time in the early 2000s, it's reasonable to conclude that the original owner had passed away. And given the obvious amount of care and love that they had displayed for such a unique and wonderful house, was that house haunted by the ghost of a romantic owner who had become so attached to their beautiful little cottage that they just couldn't let it go? Were the new owners trying to change things that made the original owner angry? Perhaps they were one of those spirits that had become so attached to the material world that they couldn't pass over and couldn't understand that they actually were dead. Unfortunately, that house was ultimately bought by the same sort of soullessly aggressive and hostile opportunistic predator builder who demolished it immediately and replaced it with two uninspiring, basic beige, vinyl-clad boxes that are only remarkable for how obtusely bland they managed to be. 
They are the architectural equivalents of showing up to a funeral in jogging pants because it's November. From the most basic point of view, it could be suggested that that behavior makes practical sense, but for the actual sake of Is our culture so toxic that any effort towards considered elegance or taste is something to be chided and reviled, punched to death by an excavator, and destroyed out of an unacknowledged jealousy and spite? But if it was indeed haunted, I can indeed relate to not being quite so sad to see it go because I lived in a very haunted house about the same time as that house was first put up for sale, a big old Victorian that had been converted into apartments sometime after 1948. I only have that date because it was the earliest record I could find in the phone book of people living at A and B subnumbers at that address. And interestingly, from the phone book, I could see that very few people lived upstairs for more than two years. In fact, there seemed to be a new person moving in every six months to a year. I lived upstairs in what was originally three bedrooms with a bath, and that ghost was very much present in the kitchen, or the south bedroom, or her bedroom, as she knew it. In the years, the two years that I lived there, I had many terrifying experiences and they were even corroborated by other people that lived in that house both before and after me. Through these, I came to learn that the ghost was a girl who had died no older than 12 of a sickness that affected her lungs and she did not understand that she had in fact Being a lung infection, my first thought was tuberculosis, but the age of the house also means that she could have developed pneumonia from Spanish flu, and either makes sense to me of why she never left, for she was either sickly so long that she became accustomed to just being in that room, or she got sick and died so quickly that she was unable to understand that she had in fact died. Either way, She's living on as if she's still a young girl in her bedroom. And of all the really terrifying things that she did that I don't like to talk about at all, she did do things that made her relatable and reminded me of her humanness despite her now supernatural form. I had a silver ring that fit my right pinky finger that my mother had bought me when I was just becoming a teen. It had a Celtic sort of Art Nouveau pattern in it, and it really meant a lot to me. Unfortunately, when I first left home, I myself got very sick with pneumonia and lost a lot of weight in a very short amount of time, and my rings didn't fit as tight as they once did. On a night out, my wet, skinny finger met a paper towel that pulled that ring right off my finger and into the trash. 
I didn't notice until it was fully lost, and I was just sick about it. But little more than a year later, I saw that same ring in a jewelry store, and I saved up my money for three months to buy it, hoping by replacing it, I would redeem myself of the guilt of losing it in the first place. I became very superstitious with my jewelry after that. I had been given a jewelry box from my grandparents that was divided into eight sections, two rows by four squares, and so I designated each little box with each finger of my right and left hand moving from my pinkies inwards, buddying up on my index fingers and thumbs because they were both the same size and the rings that I wore the least often. I would choose my rings based on what energy I wanted to enhance for that day. Amethyst in silver for exams, carnelian for courage on days I had to give presentations, but I don't want to suggest that I had so many rings to choose from. I only had one for each finger with a few extra that fit my ring fingers, and most were a gift from my mom and even a few from the dentist that I had managed to hang on to. So I was very upset when I looked into my jewelry box and found that that Celtic-style ring that I wore on my right pinky finger was missing once again. I gave myself the benefit of the doubt that perhaps I hadn't put it into my jewelry box as I usually do, and one of my young cats had jumped up on the dresser to catch a sunbeam and knocked it off. The sound of it hitting the hardwood stimulated a game of smack and chase that pushed it into one of the corners of my three-room apartment, and so I took my entire apartment apart to look for it. All of the furniture was pulled from the walls and cleaned behind. The big, ornate iron grates above the floor vents were pulled out, and I stuck my hand in to scoop out the ducks as far as I could reach. I found a few bread tags and bobby pins, but I had done such a thorough job looking for that ring. I knew with absolute certainty that that ring was not in my apartment, and I must have somehow lost it right from my finger once again. So perhaps you can imagine my shock. When I came home from university about three months later, to find that ring lying in the middle of my kitchen table, just inches from where I had eaten my breakfast less than eight hours before. The ghost had taken it. Young girls do that, don't they? And she either had a pang of consciousness to give it back, or had intentionally waited for enough time to pass that I would not be able to explain it away as my own absent-mindedness. She wanted my attention, and she got it. Now, the next thing that she did that was uncomfortably personal happened when I was sitting at my kitchen table studying, as I did. 
I had long been interested in pre-Christian Europe and the process of conversion because honestly, it just didn't make sense to me. And so in university, I sought to access runic inscriptions because I saw them as the eldest vernacular pagan texts and trusted that they could help decode how the stories of people throwing rocks at each other in the desert would make sense to people living in thick forests in the mountains with a completely different culture. And I was trying to understand myself. So I had sat down with the runic inscriptions from Maze Howe, which to me at the time was very exciting. For not only do I have ancestry from Birse in Orkney, but also from mainland Scotland and southwestern Norway. So this Neolithic tomb that had been inscribed by Iron Age Vikings represented this fascinating intersection of almost all of my ancestry that I, at the time, was just beginning to understand and discover. Now, the process of transcribing runic inscriptions that I had been trained in involves processing the words in a way that mimics the linguistic changes that have occurred in Norse language over the last thousand plus years. You're generating an old Norse form from a proto-Norse form, not unlike how Old English progresses into Middle English and Shakespearean English into Modern English. It's about as much fun as it sounds, but it does take a lot of concentration. And so as I'm working away with this technique that my professor has taught me, and the furnace is running, and the fridge is whirring, and my concentration is so intense, and I can hear the individual voices of the people downstairs, another sound starts tugging at my ear. It was three solemn notes in progression, barely there, barely in a whisper, but definitely being whistled. Just an awful, eerie, barely audible whistle. I tried to strain to hear, but once I turned my head and focused exclusively on the sound, it stopped. Are you playing a trick on me? I asked. Without a reply, I said to her, that was really creepy. I don't know what song that was or what you mean. And I left the room, turned off the lights and went to bed. I moved from that house just a few months later. The hauntings were getting to be just too much with all the other stress in my life. And I had actually been granted a scholarship to study in Norway. And I was off to Bergen to see for myself the land that my grandfather's parents had emigrated from. I never went back to that house. I was very scared of it. But it was years later, truly 12 or 13 even, as long as that, that on this one night that I had had too much to drink, I put on a record of Grieg, of all things, to confuse and entertain a house guest like I usually try to do. 
It was this record that I had bought at a thrift store. It was all battered and bruised. And I had never played it before, but I, I knew the songs from Looney Tunes, right? And the Peer Gint Suite. But that's when I heard it. Those same three solemn notes in progression. The very song that that ghost had been whistling to me. The song is called The Death of Ausa. And I didn't know it then, but my great-grandmother's mother's name was Ause. And so she would have been the last of my ancestors who died in Norway on that side. And little more than three months from the night that that ghost was whistling that song to me, I was in Norway at Grieg's house which is just a few kilometers from where I have living relatives with hair that is just as red as mine, fellow descendants of Ause. So as terrifying as it was, that ghost was demonstrating an intention to form a sincere connection with me. And I have to confess, I've rarely encountered that much effort amongst the living. So when I saw gates go up around that house that showed that it too was going to be demolished, I had mixed emotions about what that terrifying little ghost girl was going to do and where she was going to go with her house gone. I was assured by a paranormal expert that ghosts are connected to the place, not the structure. So if a ghost is unable to notice that it's actually dead, it's likely to have a similar inability to understand why their house is gone. So there's a tragic irony in having all of these old houses come down for they are far more likely to be antagonizing the ghosts that are attached to them rather than grinding them up and sending them to the landfill with the broken glass and asbestos tile and old growth timber that is now choking our landfill under this intense ecological burden of speculative selfishness and materialistic greed. Taurus energy, like in this full moon, is very much home-related. It can be sexy in the way that it represents security and safety, reassurance and reliability. It is the food on the table and bills paid in full, that trust that we put where home is where our heart is. But unhealed Taurus energy can be cruelly materialistic, counting even people as possessions and putting objects and material wealth before any real feelings or emotional considerations. It certainly isn't sentimental or romantic. And I see a lot of unhealed Taurus energy in that maximum square hostile infill house that has been ruthlessly slapped into neighborhoods with very dissonant energy in the last 10 to 15 years. 
but from the other perspective, unhealed Taurus energy can also be obstinate and stubbornly attached, refusing to acknowledge change like those angry ghosts that chase out new owners and ultimately cause the destruction of their beloved home. The sun is progressing into the opposite sign of Sagittarius, an adventurous, spontaneous energy to contrast with the slow and steady of Taurus. And because there are a lot of upcoming eclipses to draw our attention to our own relationship with how we do crave the new and exciting, but also our longing for connection and reassurance of the familiar, you can see how these two can be reversed. And I see the positioning of Mars still in Scorpio with Neptunes and Pisces, that it can create some very narcissistic energy, jealousy, and intentional harm, or just that usual sort of default gaslighting that something inspired and decorative is too expensive or shameful or impractical, so you need to stuff yourself into a box and behave. Try to resist that energy if you can, because Venus in Capricorn gives me hope that there will be a practical kindness that emerges in between, a mindful way that will inspire people to communicate and act in ways that are less destructive and toxic, but rather informed by an enthusiastic humility. I hope you can understand what I mean by that. There is a simple joy in painting something that needs to be painted. Yes, you could rip it out and replace it with toxic vinyl that you don't ever have to paint. But that decision has knock-on harmful effects that you aren't considering. And why stigmatize the simple pleasure of spending an hour of your life to take care of something? Through that act, you are connecting to its history. You are uniting yourself with all the other people from other times that have cared for it too. It is through these acts that we create the understanding that we are connected to something that is bigger than us, something that exists beyond the material world, but is made evident through the material world. Personally, I pray that the supply chain issues and an emerging awareness of how rampant consumerism and reckless misuse of housing resources in particular will shift the attitude I see in materialism here, particularly with Christmas coming. We need to shift our appreciation of the object away from being a symbol of wealth to a record of human life. Things aren't just things and shells and empty buildings when we have the courage to listen to the life they are trying to tell us about, even if 
that is done in an intensely creepy whistle. Good night, darling. was written and recorded on Treaty 6 territory, and our theme music is by Nano Uribe.